Hi, everyone. My name is Jen Malott, a partner in Freshfield's antitrust practice in Washington and Brussels, and thanks for listening to the Essential Antitrust podcast. In our last episode, we explored the key themes that we expect to see for global antitrust in 2024. Today, we're going to focus in on China, where changes to the country's merger control regime have recently entered into force. We're going to talk about the state of merger review in China, both in terms of the competition-focused merger control and national security reviews, but also the broader geopolitical context, so that non-Chinese businesses know what they should expect when faced with a filing in China. To discuss this, I'm joined today by three representatives from our antitrust practice in Asia. First, we have Nanette Dodu, who's a partner in our Beijing office and the head of our China antitrust practice. Nanette joined us last week for our 10 Key Themes podcast, which makes her the first person to be a back-to-back repeat guest on the podcast. Welcome back, Nanette. Hi, Jen. Delighted to be here again. We're also joined by Hazel Yin, who's a partner at Roy Min based in Beijing and until recently was a partner in Freshfield antitrust practice in China. Royman is an independent PRC firm that is part of Freshfield's global Stronger Together network. Thanks for joining us, Hazel. Thanks, Jane, and hi, everyone. Finally, we have Laurent Bogard, who's a counsel based in Hong Kong. Thanks for joining us, Laurent. Thanks, Jane. Glad to be here. So the catalyst for our discussion today is the fact that the Chinese merger control filing rules changed fairly significantly in the last few weeks. Nanette, can you summarize what those changes are? So the thresholds have significantly increased, particularly the local nexus element, which establishes SMR's jurisdiction to review a transaction. The new thresholds were published on the 26th of January, and they essentially recognised that the previous thresholds were low and needed to increase to account for economic growth factors. So going forward, a transaction needs to be notified if the combined global turnover of all the undertakings concerned exceeds 12 billion RMB, roughly 1.7 billion USD, or their combined China turnover exceeds 4 billion RMB, roughly 568 million USD, and each of at least two of them generate a turnover in China exceeding RMB 800 million, and this is roughly 113.5 million USD. The second point to note is the fact that under the new rules, the State Council underscores the fact that SAMR can still call in deals for review, even if these turnover thresholds are not met. The third point to note, which is also of interest, is that the proposed mega corporation threshold, which SAMR had in mind to deal with killer acquisitions, was not adopted by the State Council. And this is likely because of the controversy that this raised in terms of how this particular threshold might be applied, and potentially also because of the fact that this could have targeted a number of China's large tech companies. Thanks, Nanette. Um, that's a helpful summary. And maybe if I can turn to you, Hazel, you know, how do you think that these new rules are going to play out in practice? If, if I'm a company about to execute a new transaction, what should I be thinking about? Basically, I think it is expected that with the new thresholds, SMR's caseload will drop by almost 30%, freeing up more resources for SMR to review larger cases and hopefully speed up its review process for less complicated and straightforward cases. Staff shortage had always been an issue, 
In the past few years, SMR reviewed almost 800 cases every year, with only a handful of case handlers at the central level and also a handful more at the provincial level. While cases filed under the simplified procedure usually can be get cleared relatively quickly, for cases filed under the normal procedure, the process can still be quite lengthy, even without any competition issues. At the same time, SMR also reiterated its coin power for transactions that are below the thresholds, which gives them more jurisdictional flexibility that is in line with the other regulators worldwide. For example, the Article 22 in the EU, the share of supply tests in the UK, and also the broad jurisdiction of the US agencies. With this additional capacity, we do expect that SMR may have increased appetite to exercise this coin power so as not to err on the side of under-enforcement. This means that transaction parties will need to run substantive analysis to assess the coin risks and to consider whether views from SMR should be proactively sought to preempt any coin risks. Finally, the new regulation itself is silent on the transitional arrangement, basically how the new thresholds affect deals that have already been signed or been notified but not yet closed. However, based on our reading of the applicable Chinese administrative procedural rules, we do believe that there is a good case to argue that the new thresholds should still apply to these type of transactions. So ultimately, the right question would be whether there is the coin risk, and if so, what is the proper strategy to manage that? Thanks, Hazel. And, and it sounds like particularly around this issue of call-in risk that SAMR you know, is taking a position that's fairly in line with other competition regulators. As you mentioned, the U.S. has done this for a long time, and this is obviously a power that the EC in particular has been flexing in the last few years under Article 22. But, but maybe let's switch to substantive merger review and how that is changing and what trends you're seeing. Um, Laurent, what kinds of um, trends have you observed with SAMR over the past few years? I think before going into that, it's important to remember that SAMR is a key player alongside the, the European Commission, the CMA in the UK, DOJ, FTC in the US, ACCC in Australia, etc., when we're dealing with cross-border M&A. So when parties have a business presence in China and there is a global deal that needs to go through regulatory procedures worldwide, SMR will inevitably play an important role in this global regulatory picture. So there's been a lot of talk recently on regulatory divergence. And on that, SMR is not afraid to pursue its own theories of harm. So while its reviews are competition focused, the anti-monopoly law of China requires SMR to consider the impact on national economic development when making its determinations. So that's a broader ambit than many of its peers. Uh, and so in substance, while the new thresholds don't change this, we can expect closer scrutiny of major deals with the additional resources that SAMR will have available, as noted by Hazel. Likewise, SAMR is not afraid to walk a separate path on remedies when they're needed. Unlike other regulators globally, behavioral remedies are now more common than structural remedies. Actually, they've been more common for a while now. The vast majority of conditional clearances in China were granted subject to behavioral remedies. And while divestments are possible, transacting parties will need to keep in mind that an agreed buyer 
another regulatory process would also need to be approved in China. And so it's often difficult to square that circle. If divesting to a Chinese buyer to remedy concerns in China, the geographic footprint of that buyer and the assets to be divested need to be considered as well, because that can have knock-on regulatory obligations outside of China, which may add an additional layer of complexity. So taking all of that together, I think substantively, uh, it's still important to remember that the overall rate of intervention in China is still quite low. So we've observed 61 conditional clearances since 2008, since the uh, anti-monopoly law came into force. That's about 1% of all cases. However, that statistic doesn't take into account deals which have faced protracted review and have therefore been timed out. Uh, That was most recently the case in the Intel Tower deal back in 2023. And just to add to what Laurent has just said, I think this underscores the kind of process we see uh, in China, which isn't necessarily unique to China, but certainly adds to the complexity, adds to some of the unpredictability that some of our clients have faced in the China setting. Obviously, the focus of SAMR is very much competition. In other words, competition is very much front of mind. But I think companies also need to know and keep in mind that the views of stakeholders, particularly local sector regulators or trade associations and local players, particularly competitors or customers, carry enormous weight with SAMR. And this underscores the fact that SAMR consults quite widely during its market investigation of notified deals. So being able to anticipate the views of stakeholders, being aware of local market dynamics, including the competitiveness of local players in particular, or government priorities in a particular sector, that sector sensitivity and strategic nature in China, as well as any issues that companies might have faced with joint venture partners, suppliers or customers, all go a significant way to informing the risk profile of a specific transaction. And I would suggest this is even more so going to be the case going forward, given the fact that SMR has this call-in power, given the fact that the thresholds have increased, meaning that a deal that does not meet the turnover thresholds can still be called in if it is deemed to actually threaten competition. And so what this means for businesses is that quite apart from focusing on the substance in terms of the competition aspects, it may become increasingly necessary to consider customer outreaches or in the case of joint venture, speaking to joint venture partners in order to manage the regulatory process. It may also become necessary or appropriate to consider engaging government affairs consultants as part of the preparation and engagement with the authorities in the process. This is to ensure that together the team can work with us in framing the narrative before the regulatory authorities, particularly before SMR, but other sector regulators, if necessary, in a given transaction. 
Thanks, Nanette. Um, and it certainly sounds like having the right advisors on board early is, is helpful in all of that governmental affairs type of outreach that needs to happen in China. Hazel, you know, thinking about the, the trends and enforcement and the changes to the rules, are these targeted at any particular sector or is SEMR really looking at everything that comes across its desk with the same level of scrutiny? I think that's a very good question, Jane. Um, SMR will look at every deal on the merits, regardless of the sector. So if there is genuine competition issue, I think the party should expect a prolonged review process, multiple rounds of questions, and or you know perhaps even a remedy process prior to approval. Um, as was said earlier, prohibitions are rare. But there are still cases where the transaction parties had to terminate the deal for failure of getting SMR approval in time. The new ML, which came into effect last year, introduced the stop the clock mechanism, enabling SMR to suspend the review timeline pending remedy negotiations or submission of information to respond to its request for information. Such ability to stop the clock now will likely reinforce this trend. But with that said, if we look at SMR's past interventions, we can infer that there is particular interest in semiconductors, high-tech, advanced manufacturing, air transport, pharmaceuticals, and chemicals. Products that are considered critical to supply chain security in China will be on top of SMR's agenda. So businesses in entering into cross-border transactions uh, where there is a nexus to China will have to stay close to the SMR review process and building sufficient buffer in the deal documents as it has the potential to drag on. Yeah, I think just drawing on that, it's worth noting that the sectors mentioned by Hazel, uh, say perhaps air transport, are, are some that have been front and center in global discussions on where security of supply issues have pushed certain countries to attempt to onshore supply chains again. And so in that regard, availability of key inputs uh, for Chinese market players is a concern that SAMR will take into account very seriously when it reviews a transaction. And, and you know, this will be an important factor in SAMR requiring continuous supply obligation as a condition for clearance, for example. And that's even if there is no specific horizontal, vertical, or even conglomerate competitive relationship between the transacting parties. And, and one case to call out there in, in particular, uh, one recent case is the Mixlinear Silicon Motion case, uh, for example. So this was a semiconductor deal between a US acquirer and a Taiwan-based target. And SMR noted that Silicon Motion's Chinese customers expressed concern that the transaction would likely affect the supply of third-party NAND flash memory master control chips, which was a product offered by the target, uh, being Silicon Motion. So what resulted was an adoption of a conditional clearance decision with several behavioral remedies on the acquirer, including continued supply of these chips on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms, continuing obligations to honor existing supply contracts, no substantial changes to the target's business model and maintenance of R&D. So behavioral remedies, but, but quite far-reaching ones. Again, we, we don't expect the new rules to change this dynamic, 
but closer scrutiny is likely with the additional resources that SMR will have as a result uh, of these new thresholds. Thanks, Laurent. And that's actually a neat segue into another important aspect of regulatory reviews in China, which is the national security regime. Nanette, maybe you can kick off. And for people listening who have not had the pleasure of a Chinese national security review, can you just walk us through what that actually entails? Sure, Jen. So if SAMR reviews for merger control can be considered the equivalent of DOJ FTC reviews of mergers, then national security review is more akin to the CFIUS process that um, some of our listeners will, will be familiar with. When does the NSR regime kick in? There are certain sectors that are captured, and there are also a broad array of transactions that could require notification and review under the NSR regime. A few words on the sectors captured. Like many other jurisdictions, the defence sector is an area of focus. And here, any investment in a Chinese business that carries on business in a military or military-related sector, or any investment in such a business that's located near a military facility can be caught under the NSR regime. Secondly, any acquisition of control over a Chinese business that's active in a sector that's deemed critical or key in China can also be caught. And the regulations list a number of sectors, including agriculture, energy and resources, equipment manufacturing, infrastructure, transportation services, cultural products and services, IT or internet-related products and services, key technologies and financial services. It's important to underscore, though, that this list is not exhaustive. And indeed, what the regulation says is that any other critical sector that has a national security ramifications can be reviewed by the authority. Critical is not defined in the law, nor is control defined in the law And so this basically means that what we do is really to conduct a broad-based risk assessment, one considering the perceived vulnerability of a Chinese target business, in other words, looking at the target risk profile, and then secondly, also looking at any perceived threats posed by the foreign investor, what I would broadly call the foreign investor risk. The sorts of things we will consider, particularly when looking at the Chinese business that's being acquired, is obviously its nexus to military, but also its footprint. For example, whether it has R&D resources, uh, the customer and supplier profile that it has, its market position, um, the strategic importance, whether it's providing critical products or services, or indeed whether it holds or processes a large amount of personal and important data, particularly given the importance of data protection regulation in China. There are other factors that we would consider also around the transaction profile of the deal. The key point to note as well is that these rules can capture offshore deals, although it's it's important to say as well that in practice, such deals have tended not to attract a huge amount of review. Similar to what Hazel said in terms of the sectors that are likely to be of interest, you have sectors like 
technology sectors, certain chemical-related sectors, and also interesting auto sector, AI and robotics as well that can come into play. In terms of the review process, like many other regimes overseas, this can be a rather opaque process. And there is potential for unpredictability and uncertainty in terms of the outcome, just because the rules are very broad and vaguely defined. I mean, what you describe sounds like a lot of of rules and thresholds that are somewhat subjective, somewhat opaque. Um, and, And Hazel, I'm curious, is there any way for a party to a transaction to actually get some comfort on whether a deal should be notified or not? I think the short answer to that question is yes. Uh, In fact, NDRC is open to consultation to address such jurisdictional issues. We have had a few cases where NDRC was comfortable to say that there is no need to file. However, if the parties do bring their transaction to NDRC's attention, there's always the risk that NDRC may want to take a conservative view requesting the parties to file. Besides, NDRC is not bound by any timeline for the consultation process. While our experiences in general are positive, there are also cases where the consultation itself can take particularly long. In a nutshell, the parties may consider making use of the consultation process to get comfortable, to get sufficient deal certainty, but one should always be mindful of the implications both from a timing perspective and also from outcomes perspective. Thanks, Hazel. And, you know, of course, what we've been talking about with respect to national security review so far is mostly process, albeit what sounds like a pretty painful process. But, you know, the $64 million question is really whether the NSR has been used to kill overseas deals that are regarded as antithetical to China's interests. Are there any precedents for that? Uh, I think there's uh, no indication at present that NDRC is weaponizing this uh, national security review process. At least it's not as interventionalist as the other foreign investment control regimes overseas. As such, a foreign investor should not be too concerned with the Chinese NSR regime. To our knowledge, so far, there are very few deals in the public domain where the NDRC killed such deals on the basis of uh, national security. However, there are indeed transactions where the NDRC reviewed and they requested the parties to uh, commit to conditions, and such conditions may involve structural conditions or conduct conditions, just as the type of conditions one might expect in the merger control process. So uh, there should be at least the risk that the party should be uh, careful of. And, and, and the reality is, just adding on top of what Hazel's also saying, frankly, as with foreign investment screening more generally, the process can be quite unpredictable and lengthy. Uh, in the China context, there is a statutory review period of 105 business days. But in practice, this can vary significantly in terms of how long the process can take. One, because the NDRC can stop the clock when it's waiting for parties to respond to questions. Secondly, if the State Council is required to review a transaction, this can also take considerable time. The risk associated with the NSR review is, of course, to some extent contingent also on current geopolitical tensions. 
the process can be impacted by macro forces. Thanks very much, Nanette. And I think that brings us about to the end of our time. But maybe before we wrap up, I'll ask for each of you if there's a key takeaway that you would like companies to leave this episode with on what they should be thinking about in terms of merger control and national security review in China. And Nanette, maybe I'll start with you. I think one key point to mention is the fact that overall, the SAMR process, when it comes to merger control, is manageable. It is true that for those high-profile transformational deals, there is an element of unpredictability. But I would suggest that this element of unpredictability is not significantly different from what we are seeing from the European Commission, the CMA, or the US agencies do these days with a very broad and interventionist agenda that they currently have. I mean, my, my message would be to acknowledge the fact that the anti-monopoly law allows SAMR to take into account harms that are not purely competition related when it reviews a transaction. And so parties to a transaction that has to be notified in China should take that into account when assessing the risk profile of their transaction and any substantive risks. Uh, I would say that advanced planning is key. Parties must assess the China-specific level of interest in the deal and map out competitive, geopolitical, and also industrial policy issues that could affect a decision. But despite these headwinds, as Nanette mentioned, deals can still get done with a careful, substantive, and procedural planning. Well, thanks very much, Hazel, Laurent, Nanette. That is all very helpful to understand. We are now at the end of our time, but thanks very much to all three of you for sharing your insights today. And thanks, as always, to those of you who have listened in. And we will see you next time with more Essential Antitrust.